Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two dedicated to helping you help your children fully bloom. One of our greatest passions here at the Full Bloom Project is promoting health at every size for the whole family. And sometimes the whole family includes a child or children born in larger bodies. While some parents are easily able to embrace size diversity, it is very common to have questions and even concerns when it comes to our larger bodied kids. Today we are bringing you Dr. Kendrin Sonneville, a registered dietitian, behavioral scientist, public health researcher, and assistant professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Her research on body dissatisfaction, weight misperception, and the unintended consequences of obesity prevention programs offers tremendous insight and evidence-based direction to anyone who interacts with kids in larger bodies. She holds a doctorate in public health nutrition and an adjunct appointment at Harvard Medical School. She is a collaborating mentor for the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders at Boston Children's Hospital and the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Sonneville, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. We'd love to hear what brought you to this important research, but first, have I left anything out that our listeners should know about you? I don't think you could possibly have missed anything for that very generous introduction. Um, See, so yeah, I actually start by talking sort of where I was early in my career and what brought me to um, where I am in my uh, research and work now. So as you mentioned, I'm a dietitian by training, and I started um, early in my career working with children and adolescents who were what I thought at the time is like opposite ends of the spectrum. So I spent some of my time working in the eating disorders program and the other part of my time working in the clinic uh, with youth that had been told they needed to lose weight. And the longer I worked in the clinics, the more I realized these patients were actually more alike than they were different. Um, kind of the common experiences of the folks I treated were that they were highly concerned about their weight and eating, and they had experienced a lot of suffering because of those concerns. The thing that was different was the way that we treated them. So in the eating disorder clinic, we really focus on the whole person, right? Like restoring the relationship with food. That involves things like relying on hunger cues and making sure that folks aren't labeling foods as good or bad. And there's a lot of discussion of self-acceptance and body acceptance. And then when we treated folks in larger bodies, the focus was on weight, on weight loss, on weight control. And we actually didn't pay very much attention to the folks' relationship with food and their bodies. And that seemed wrong or felt wrong. And it was those experiences that I had that really got me interested in um, prevention and public health. And after working for a few years clinically, I decided to pursue a doctoral degree in public health so I could really tease apart these research questions. Like how can we prevent suffering that I was seeing every day in my clinic from ever happening? And I was really curious about particularly the treatment of uh, folks in larger bodies and whether the kinds of approaches that we were using might actually be harmful. 
Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> just, I just feel like the the need to thank you for you know seeing that and and deciding to really investigate it further and being curious about it. Yeah, I always say that my best research questions came from my patients, right? Because they could articulate things and their experiences. Um, were just so insightful, right? So just working with 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 patients just let me sort of hungry to understand these kind of patterns and questions that I was seeing from them. So I'm really grateful to folks who are so honest about what they were going through that helped shape the the research that I career the research career that I actually have. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that you mentioned that we're here talking about today, you know, the name of the episode is what to do if your kid is in a larger body, and we kind of want to appreciate that parents and our culture have a lot to say or feelings about that and what what do you mean what do we mean what do we mean today about a larger bodied kid what does that mean yeah so I guess the term it's not uh easy to define clearly certainly the term larger bodied is relative just like like a term tall is relative Mm -hmm. right like tall isn't good or bad. A person could be tall in some contexts, but not in others. Some tall people are taller than others. And I use the tall example because height is uh, much less stigmatized than weight. So it makes a lot of sense when we talk about um, height, when you think about sort of the kind of the spectrum of um, of bodies. Uh, when I use the term larger body, though, I tend to think about kids who are heavier than many of their peers, uh, kids who might experience teasing or bullying because of their weight, kids who have doctors that tell them their weight is too high because of where they fall on a growth chart. Um, Just in general, kids with larger bodies are really those kids who are getting more than average pressure to either lose weight or to change their bodies. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you mentioned that we can sort of define this by maybe what your pediatrician is saying, because that's one Mm -hmm. of the things we really want to talk to you about, that this idea that starting in the pediatrician's office and moving into parents' well-meaning instincts what are some of the major misconceptions about health? Because defining a larger body as just being relative even to your environment or the peers you're around, it sometimes gets lumped into this like, oh, there's something wrong with you. You're in a larger body. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, like if you could kind of walk us through these misconceptions about how health starts to get talked about Um, Mm -hmm. when we talk about larger bodies, um, that I think that could be really useful. Yeah. I guess the first thing I would say is that we can't always assume doctors know best when dealing with weight related topics. So doctors are obviously very well-meaning and they are there looking out for their patient's health, but they actually don't get much training at all about how to talk about weight and health. And there's so much emphasis on the quote unquote war on obesity within medical training that the unintended consequence of that is that there's really an overfocus on weight as a marker of health. And when you overfocus on weight as a marker of health, it tends to minimize really important elements of health like mental health and self-care and health behaviors. And when we focus on sort of one number and make assumptions about people's health based on this one number, we can end up doing actually more harm than good. So some of my research is focused on BMI screening. It is a practice that is super common in 
uh, primary care settings. Mm -hmm. um, when a kid goes in for a checkup, they're weighed, they're measured, their BMI is plotted on a growth chart. And, you know, I was seeing this happen within my clinical practice and I wondered, actually, what is the uh, impact of this BMI screening practice that is recommended by kind of all of the national organizations uh, focus on kids' health? So the recommendations are for when a kid is over a certain cutoff, doctors are trained to notify them of their weight status. And they use terms like obese or overweight and they communicate those words to kids and families. And that recommendation and that practice is really based on the assumption that these kinds of words that we know are stigmatizing um, are actually going to motivate people to be healthier. Mm. And we've researched that um, using several different types of studies, but we really find that those words and those labels are not actually helpful. So in a few studies that we've done, um, only in kids with larger bodies. We really divide those kids up into two groups. The ones that think their weight is just fine, is appropriate for their, you know, is appropriate for them. And then the other folks who think that their weight is too high. And we know that the kids who think their weight is just about right and right for them, they have healthier habits, they have healthier growth patterns, they have fewer depressive symptoms, they have less disordered eating. It really isn't um, helpful necessarily to identify with these words that come with a lot of stigma and shame. So just yeah. to clarify for our listeners, because I mm -hmm. think that's just so important what you just said, I just want to make sure that what that research was studying was two, two types of kids who are in the same type of larger body or in a larger, in larger bodies. So one who are in larger bodies, but they, for whatever reason, and hopefully parents will understand why, um, mm -hmm. are okay with their weight or don't find that there's a problem and it's right and they, they identify it as right for them. Mm -hmm. They're still in the same type of body as the other category, but yep. those category of kids feel that they are overweight and they're, they need to change that and it's not right for their body, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we, so th we did a series of studies that looked at kind of these two groups of kids. And then we did this other study where we brought kids into our, our lab, actually, um, all in larger bodies. Half the kids, we told them what their weight status was. The other half, we didn't. And then for everyone, we just talked to them about health and health behavior changes they thought about making. And for the kids who we started the visit with this sort of notification of weight status, they left that appointment, like 20 minutes, super brief appointment. They left feeling body dissatisfied, their mood was bad, they had uh, greater feelings of weight bias just by saying literally the only difference between the two study groups is we use the word overweight at the start of the visit. So there's just really a lot of power in these terms. And I don't think um, medical practices have really caught up with what we know about the potential harms of using um, words and really focusing in on weight. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is like, the self-perception factor mm -hmm. is enormous. This idea that it's like, again, well-meaning, the idea is if you inform someone, okay, you're overweight, you're obese, it's the traditional thought that, that somehow that's going to help motivate when actually right. it's, it almost sounds like you're saying that it's better for someone to think they're doing better than they really are. That's absolutely right. Like thinking your weight 
is a problem is actually the problem, right? Mm -hmm. We want people to feel um, good about themselves and sort of not assign themselves to these uh, kind of terms and titles that we know have um, kind of all these negative connotations. I mean, just just so I just want to say it. I want to hear you say it again. I, I hope our listeners really hear this because it's it's not what's out there floating around in the world at all. You know, mm-hmm. it's that I what you said about thinking that your weight is a problem is the problem. It's not mm-hmm. that your weight's the problem. Is just like a complete reversal for I think what a lot of our listeners hear. Yeah. And what, what doctors perpetuate, because that's what they're hearing in medical training. Right. Yes. And so just to be clear, like they're hearing that in medical training because the training is not like is not informed by the research. Is that what's happening? Is this yeah, so- is your research like being disseminated, your, this type of research being disseminated into medical school? Oh, gosh, I wish that, that it was. I would say that there is... Um, so much happening in the space of quote unquote obesity research that is showing that obesity is correlated with health conditions. It does not mean that obesity causes health conditions. It's correlated with certain health conditions. And it's sort of those correlational studies that have really splashy headlines are really compelling. And the number of studies that are happening in that space are just so much more than the studies that are happening Uh, for folks generally coming from the eating disorder world that are realizing that body satisfaction and weight perception, these types of things matter a whole lot. And what's important to keep in mind is that if weight is correlated with health, which, which it is, right, we know that it is, it doesn't mean that the weight is causing the health concerns, right? If you are someone in a larger body and you have a lifetime of Uh, yo-yo dieting or weight cycling is a term that we use, weight gain and weight loss, weight gain and weight loss. That is very stressful on the body. That is predictive of lots of poor health outcomes. If you're someone in a larger body, you are facing stigma every single day. That affects your health outcomes. And I think we make this assumption and doctors often make the assumption that high weight is is the problem. And in fact, it is the experience of being a person in a larger body that might be explaining quite a lot of the poor health we see in folks with larger bodies. I mean, it just, it sounds so, I guess I'm trying to be mindful in this moment that I am a professional in the eating disorder treatment field. And so maybe yeah. that's partly why, as you say that, I feel like that's so obvious, it's so intuitive. And yet, mm-hmm. I, it like you're saying this this hasn't even really fully made it into the mainstream of like medical training. Yeah. <laughs> so we so we have a, a ways to go, and I guess bearing that in mind, while we're waiting for like common medical practice to catch up mm-hmm. with this really cutting edge research, how can parents actually promote health? And when I say that, I really mean mental and physical health in their larger bodied children, um, given that it, it sounds like it's, it's always going to be hard, but it's particularly hard right now. Mm-hmm. So not surprised you to know that the, my answer to that question is going to be treat those kids like you would treat a child in a smaller body. And there's a lot of research that shows that parents tend to use different feeding practices with large bodied kids, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine you have a thinner child who is food driven, right? So food driven might mean a kid who has just like a a really appetite is always hungry, always seeking food, really likes food, like tweets, uh, sweets and treats and that type of stuff. If you have a thinner child who is food driven, 
this quality is usually not something that causes a lot of stress, right? A big Mm -hmm. appetite isn't good or bad. It just is. And a parent may have some rules in place to make sure the child has like a relatively well-balanced diet and might try to make sure that the kid doesn't eat so many sweets that they get a stomach ache. But it is just not perceived as this major issue. Mm -hmm. But when you see the same quality in a heavier child, you know, parents often see this characteristic as an issue that needs to be managed or fixed. And mm-hmm. what I often see parents doing is making the kids feel ashamed about their big appetite or make, making them feel embarrassed for really liking foods that are that are yummy, that we all like the taste of. And they may go out of their way to limit uh, the kids' intake of these particular foods. And as you, you guys are mental health clinicians, you know this approach backfires, right? Mm-hmm. If you tell someone they can't have a thing that they love, it makes you want it more. Mm-hmm. It makes that thing feel so much more important or special than it actually is. And the practice of setting strict limits, um, like parents are often tempted to do with kids and larger bodies, it makes these kids seek out food more, particularly when you're not going to find out about it. And this really sets them up for secretive eating and shame And that type of secretive eating and shame cycle tends to get worse and worse as kids age because they have more opportunities to to seek out food and get food outside of the sort of um, outside of their household. And so you're really setting them up to have a dysfunctional relationship with food when food is really restricted in the house. So just really treating the bodies, although they're different, as similarly around food, you Mm -hmm. know, that to identify it as one kid is tall and one kid Mm -hmm. is short, and I'm not going to change their food because of that, Mm -hmm. Um, to really think about it that way, because what your research shows is that's what promotes health in both kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I often tell, like, the patients I work with and their families, And it's a silly thing I would say, but I would say eating a cookie is a life skill, right? So parents (laughs) shouldn't be thinking about keeping their kids away from cookies. They should be thinking about making sure their kid can eat a cookie, two or three cookies without guilt or shame and really taste it and enjoy it. Like these are the kinds of skills that are going to serve kids as they get older and they're navigating new environments. Keeping these away and, you know, keeping these foods on lockdown is actually not teaching folks skills in tasting food, feeling their hunger and, you know, hunger and fullness cues, honoring cravings. Um, These are the kinds of skills that we have to learn inside the home before we take them out into the real world. And really restrictive feeding practices kind of undermine the development of those important skills. And those skills, like you said, they're life skills. And that Mm -hmm. means that anybody that Mm -hmm. is living life, whether they're in a bigger body or a smaller body or like a tall body or a short body, they need those skills. And I think that is so practical to mm-hmm. just encourage people to like look at larger body, smaller body, no different than you would look at taller body, shorter body. And also this idea that you could actively think to yourself, if you're having problems with this as a parent, let's say you have one child that is slimmer than the other mm-hmm. to really actively force yourself to look at your larger bodied child as though they had a smaller body and then relate mm-hmm. to them accordingly. If that is yep. like a, like a thing that's coming up for you as a parent. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So then we get to that million dollar question, <laughs> which maybe you already answered, but maybe you mm-hmm. have, you have a different idea for this, which, um, 
you know, what, what do our listeners as parents, what's the one thing that they could do on a daily basis that would be correlated with like wonderful outcomes for their mm-hmm. children's health, <laughs> mental and physical? Yeah, I would say just not focusing on weight, right? Mm-hmm. Some kids are meant to be in larger bodies, but kids with larger bodies are literally bombarded with messages that their bodies are not okay. They get those from doctors, from the media, from their peers. And I think when you are in the role of parents, I think your job is to not let your kid think that your love for them is in any way tied to the size of their body. Mm-hmm. And typically when kids get that message from parents, again, parents are well-meaning. They see a larger body and they worry about health consequences. You know, And I would think about that two ways. One is uh, it's probably not the larger body that is related to health consequences. It's probably the really difficult experiences that folks in larger bodies face because of their body size, number one. Number two, they're getting plenty of messages about their bodies in other places. Let sort of the message they get from you as a parent and messages that are within the home to be really sort of safe and supportive. And like I mentioned before, our research shows that larger body kids who feel good about their bodies are healthier in the long term. So cultivating this body acceptance and this body satisfaction um, really will pay off. Yeah. So I guess if you're a parent of a child with a larger body, your job is to have your, you know, to really help your child have a healthy relationship with food and their body and not to help them change it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so well said. And also I, I'm thinking about all the parents that really think they're doing well by their children to like, to do the opposite of accepting their bodies. Like I hear a lot of parents saying like, well, I want them to be realistic about living in this world. It's almost like in an attempt to protect them from the harshness that's yeah. out there that you're describing, almost like just sending the same message as opposed to saying, okay, you might hear this out there, mm-hmm. but in our home, knowing that the parent can actually do a lot mm-hmm. to offset that by mm-hmm. promoting body acceptance as opposed to like whatever this other kind of backwards practice that well-meaning parents do all the time to sort of prepare their kids for this harsh, mean world. Yep. Actually, you could do that probably better by helping with the acceptance. Um, totally. Yeah. And it's really cool to see research that supports that. Yep. Yeah. And also, yeah. I mean, I think for for our parents listening, if you are a parent that is listening to this podcast and thinking, oh, gosh, I'm, I've got a lot of work to do here. I didn't mean to be doing, to be making my kids sicker by, you know, or unhealthy by trying to help them lose weight somehow without even saying it, just trying to kind of, you know, limit food here and there or whatever people do that, yeah, I mean, give yourself, you know, a, a an appreciation for loving your kid and wanting them to be healthy and really hear this, this message that, like the message that you have to send right now that, that it's healthier for them to, to accept their body and really send a lot of those messages. Yep. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room for self-compassion here. Parents are doing the best they can and getting mixed messages from lots of places and particularly, um, you know, wanting to uh, prevent um, difficult social interactions for kids. And the fact of the matter is, 
larger body kids do face a lot of teasing and bullying. So they're trying to manage that and messages from doctors. So this is, this is hard work, right? Like this is a really, uh, as much as it sounds pretty intuitive, once you hear it, sure, help my kid love their body. Um, there are a lot of reasons why uh, parents um, sort of engage in the kind of feeding practices that they do because they're trying to protect their kids. Um, and sometimes when you sort of switch from a more restrictive feeding practice to one that's sort of more intuitive, it doesn't always go great right away, right? So if you have restricted a certain food and all of a sudden you say it's allowed now, a kid's going to overdo it on that food because it had been off limits for such a long time and realize that introduction of these things, there tends to be a bit of a pendulum swing. And once a child realizes that a food is available, it becomes uh, shockingly less interesting. But there's a lot of trial and error that happens when you're trying to take on these new practices. So like I said, a lot of self-compassion and realizing that feeding and supporting kids um, can be pretty challenging when you're facing these outside pressures. I, th- I think it's a great you know, note to end on because part of why we've created this platform is because a lot of the messaging out there that is pro body positivity and body acceptance and health at every size inadvertently shames parents that have just Mm -hmm. not known. And so part of what we're trying to do, much like we do in our family-based treatment work, is to really take an agnostic approach with our parents. Mm -hmm. And I I like that we're closing on, what was the word that you used? Self-compassion. Compassion, because that's what we want our kids to have as well. And okay, so you're doing your best and that you're listening to this podcast is... (laughs) Yeah, exceptional that you're mm-hmm. that you're that curious and um, attentive, and you know we're all doing our best, and that you know synthesizing a little bit of new information, and if it helps you look at your kid a slightly different way that allows them to become more self compassionate, then it's it's a process. So thank you so much for coming on. It's it's just been so informative, and oh, it's been my pleasure. Like, So that's our show. Dr. Sonneville offered us such compelling evidence that we hope will guide the way you and your care providers relate to your children, regardless of their size and age. After we recorded this episode, we were both struck by the unexpected protective factor of believing you are healthier than you actually are. We really appreciated how counterintuitive a lot of the research findings are, especially in our culture where we hear a lot about the war on obesity. For more guidance around this and so much more, please sign up for our mailing list at fullbloomproject.com to gain access to the virtual guide to this episode. Each ABC guide is carefully curated for parents who want to reinforce the topics we discuss, get access to additional resources, and put body positive parenting into practice. As always, we are interested in your take on this episode and what new parenting practice our guest inspired in you. We'll be on the lookout for your comments and questions on Instagram, so please be sure to follow us at Full Bloom Project and tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.